Good morning to you today. We are going to continue with our series where we are looking at the, the membership vows of our particular denomination. And uh, in a minute, I'm going to go ahead and read the vow that we're going to be looking at today. But I want to start by looking at the passage that we're going to be reflecting on. And so if you have a Bible uh, near you, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20. Okay. So let me go ahead and read this passage for us uh, uh, this morning. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you and you have, uh, if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where, there, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's God's word. Um, so as I said, we're going to be looking at our membership vows, and today's membership vow, I think in some sense, is going to be one of the hardest of the vows to, to think through. I would say that this vow is maybe the most challenging. It's the one that maybe most mature Christians don't readily affirm, and when I read it, uh, perhaps you'll see why. So the vow is whether or not you can promise to submit to the governance and discipline of the church. And can you promise to study its purity and peace? And even just reading it right away, you can, you can tell how difficult it might be, right? We don't often uh, feel warm and cozy, uh, super spiritual when we hear words like governance or discipline or submit or um, study, uh, especially maybe the word peace. And so when we hear that, uh, maybe we draw back a little bit. You know, many of us would say we love the church, but when we hear language like that, it might trigger us, uh, might trigger us our insecurities around the church or our reservations about, you know, maybe trusting the church. Uh, because when we hear a question like that, it doesn't sound super spiritual, as I said, and in a sense, it feels like a, like the switch in the bait and switch, right? A, a question like that when you're when you're posing it to potential uh, members, it feels like a bait and switch. It feels like a power play. Uh, it doesn't feel very spiritual. Um, but I would, I'm going to challenge us uh, because I think that this verse, just like so, so often when we're thinking about uh, the things of God, when we think about some of the uh, doctrines and, and uh, ideas that come with the Christian faith, at the first read, they're incredibly challenging. Uh, they go against the grain of our nature. They go against the grain of our heart. They go against the grain of our culture. But as you marinate on it, as you think about it more, it actually becomes super life-giving. And so maybe this, this question is more like a door, like a great door with a great big lock on it that in some ways seems really intimidating. But once you move through it, and I think the passage is going to be, in some sense, a key to opening up this door. 
then you'll enter into a whole new world of, I think, loving commitment and understanding uh, the uh, understanding uh, the kind of leader that Christians are called to be and the kind of community, the, the safe community that uh, they are meant to develop. And so let's go ahead and let's, let's mine two or three things from this passage. And I think what we can learn is that the church is really counterintuitive and therefore countercultural. And I think we see that in three ways. It's countercultural or counterintuitive in its understanding of greatness, uh, in its recognition of authority, and its embrace of discipline and study. So first, it's counterintuitive or countercultural in its understanding of greatness. You know, leading up to this passage, these first 15 verses in, in Matthew are well worth going over, but let me just summarize uh, the three different teachings that are all sort of bound up together. And here you see that Jesus is teaching his disciples really the essential character trait of somebody who's in the kingdom of God. And it's born out of a question that one of the disciples uh, puts to Jesus. And that question is this, who is greatest in the kingdom of God? And so uh, Jesus begins to teach on that theme. And the reason he's teaching on that theme, what is the greatest, uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God is because he's trying to create leaders that the world can trust. Jesus is trying to create leaders that the world can trust. And so he says the greatest character trait in the kingdom of God, the greatest quality of somebody who is a citizen of the kingdom of God is humility. The greater the person is in the kingdom of God, the greater humility you'll discover that they possess. And to give an example, he calls over a child. And if you think about it, children uh, are great pictures of humility. Why? Because they're not threatening. Uh, children are not good at deceiving. Um, they are oblivious to social status. Children, unlike uh, Jesus' own disciples, were always quick to respond to Jesus, and they were quick to respond to him without asking questions like, who's the greatest? See, the greatest in the kingdom of God is somebody with childlike humility. Second, he says, remember, he's trying to create leaders the world can trust. He says, not only do you need great humility, you need great awareness. Because to be a leader in the church you must have a great awareness of your own pride and your own conceit. You must have a great awareness of your own ability to mess things up, to put yourself forward. And he wants them to see how easily it would be for them to be led astray and for them to lead others astray. I mean, think about it. Jesus is encouraging all of his followers toward humility. He's saying, embrace humility, adopt humility, become humble. Why? So that they can love people better. But he's, what he's not saying is embrace humility, move towards humility so that you can be taken advantage of by leaders who are unaware of their own pride and conceit, by leaders who are unaware of their ability to take advantage of people. So he puts forward, you know, you need to be greatly humble, but you also have to be greatly aware to mess not just situations up, but people up. And then he gives this incredibly stern warning. He gives a really stern warning because he wants to create leaders the world can trust. He says, 
Do you know at the end of time, it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck, Christian leader, than, not to, than to take advantage of the humble, to take advantage of those with childlike humility. He says, it is so important that as I send you out, that as you represent me in the world, as, as, I, as, as you know, people with childlike humility are brought into you, your orbit, it would be better that you uh, cut out your eye. It would be better that you cut off your hand and uh, cut off your feet than lead others astray by your own pride and self-conceit, by taking advantage of people, by being unsafe. So he's saying, I'm giving, I'm giving you my ministry. And therefore, you need to know that there are habits of your heart, there are habits of your hand that will smear my name and bring confusion about my mission. Be aware. So he's trying to create leaders that the world can trust. They need to have great humility. They have, need to have great awareness, but they also need to have great hope. And where do they get that great hope? In verses eight, uh, in chapter 18, verses 10 through 14, Jesus says this, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he truly finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. And so what is he saying? He's saying, here we see the reckless love of God, that God pursues those who go astray, not just the, the sheep that go astray, but he pursues the leaders who are sheep that go astray. He pursues wayward sheep. And so even though uh, the disciples are being challenged greatly here, He's saying, don't you know, I will always pursue you. Don't you know, I will always come and rescue you. I will entangle you from sin. I will rescue from the, mount, the mouths of lions. Don't you know that God goes after his people? So Christian community is a countercultural community in its understanding of greatness. Christian leaders, in order to be the kind of leaders that the world can trust, they need to have an, great, an understanding of great humility, an understanding of the great awareness that they need, but they also have to be bolstered by the great love of God because he promises to pursue them. So the second thing we should look at is that Christians recognize their need for authority. Now, when we talk about authority, what kind of authority are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual authority. The only kind of authority that the church is meant to have is spiritual authority. And that's an authority that people enter into by a promise. They enter into by faith. But it's also an authority that people are free to reject. They're free to leave your church. Um, there's nothing. Um, they're free to leave your church. I'll just put it that way. You know, George Carlin, uh, the comedian, the late comedian, he used to say that he had as much power as the Pope but he just didn't have as many people who believed in his power. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that spiritual power, spiritual authority is really just perception. It's not real. Uh, it doesn't have any real power. But what we see here in the passage is, is that it does. The church has spiritual authority. And in verses, uh, in Matthew 18, it says, 
Whatever you bind in verse 8, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And that's really important for us to remember. Why? Because those things that matter, those sacred things that we bring and we we want God to come in and bless, anoint, uh, save, celebrate things like weddings and baptisms and conversions and invitation to the Lord's Supper and uh, entrance into the church. All of those things really happen. So when you're married here on earth, not only are you bound together on earth, you're bound in, in the sight of God. You're bound in heaven. When, you're, when a Christian is converted, uh, when they become Christians, not only are they, you know, uh, cleansed here, they're really cleansed in the sight of God. When you partake of the Lord's Supper, you're not just taking, partaking of bread and wine, but in the heavenly places, God is, is ministering to you by his spirit through the, what we believe is the body and blood of Christ, right? And those signs are being sealed to us. By, uh, in the heavenly places, that's real. And when you enter into the church as a member, what happens really on earth happens in heaven as well, that you actually do become part of the body of Christ. You are engrafted into the body. You become part of a family that's real on earth, and it's real in heaven. When you're freed from sin, um, that's real on earth as it's real in heaven and on and on and on. But tragically, you know, when you're brought into a church and you're also removed from a church, which happens very, very infrequently, but that's true too. When you're loosed from a church, you're loosed in heaven as well. So the church is an authority. It's an, an authority unlike any other, but, or I should say, and it's a commitment to those uh, the church is committed to those under its care, unlike any other. And in Hebrews 12, uh, verses 13 and 17, um, it says something interesting about the commitment that church leaders have for their people. Uh, it says that uh, though the leaders keep watch, uh, uh, as the leaders keep watch over your souls, they will give an account for their work. And what that means is that at the end of time, that when we come before, uh, before the face of God, we'll have to, we'll be held responsible for the kind of trustworthy leaders that we were. Did we shepherd well? Did we lead people faithfully? Were we a safe community? You see, when we talk about membership and joining a church, we're not just talking about attracting people. We're talking about a covenant that really should make all of us shudder. Um, Ligon Duncan tells a story of a pretty famous uh, Baptist minister, John Gill, and John Gill was working in London, and he wrote to a young man in London who had just recently taken on a small and humble church, and it was his first pastorate. He'd been an assistant pastor for a very long time, and he was an assistant pastor at a pretty big church, and as he took this new role, uh, John Gill, the great Baptist minister, wrote this young man a letter. And in the letter, he said this, he says, I know that you are somewhat embarrassed that you have been called to pastor so small a flock, but I will assure you that on that great day, when you stand before the judge of heaven and earth and you give account for how you have shepherded their souls, 
you will say, this has been enough for me. So great a task is it to lead out of a great humility, to know the great awareness that you need to have of your own proclivity towards pride and self-conceit, and to maintain the hope in the midst of what is often uh, discouraging work, difficult work, but to maintain that hope. Um, yes, when we stand before the throne, we probably will say, uh, this was enough for me. And so, you know, it comes with extraordinary comfort to know that Christ is present in this work. So how or why does this kind of spiritual power and authority reside in the church, you might ask? Because Christ, who has all the power, who has all the authority, is present in this body. And through this work, Christ is pastoring all of us. So all of our authority comes from him. That's why in verse 20, it says, for wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there am I among them. See, Christians shouldn't be, should, Christians should be aware of their faults and never afraid to confront their faults. Christians should be aware of their faults and never afraid to confront their faults. Why? Because in confronting them with others, we get to experience Christ in our midst. And with that in mind, let's move to this, the next point. The Christians, as a counterintuitive, uh, countercultural community, need to embrace discipline. Hebrews 12 says um, that we are to appreciate value discipline because it's proof that we're actually children of God. It's proof that we're, we're legitimate sons and daughters of God. And in fact, if we weren't disciplined, we would uh, be full of doubt as just as uh, sons with good fathers and mothers uh, know that they're loved, know that they're uh, legitimate because their parents often say no, because they lovingly correct them and lovingly confront them. And so as we enter into the passage here, uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, what we see here is a three-step process of redemptive pursuit. It's not a three-step process of condemnation. It's not a three-step process leading to, um, to um, uh, causing anxiety, but it's a three-step process that leads to redemption and reconciliation. So let's go through just these, these verses fairly quickly. In verse 15, it says, your brother, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So we're talking about somebody who knows the difference between things they don't just like, uh, behavior they don't like, and sinful behavior, right? And so somebody who has been sinned against, Jesus says, you are called to lovingly, discreetly, and without assigning motivation, confront the other. He's saying it's loving to lovingly confront one who sinned against you. And so in this, Jesus is normalizing loving confrontation because sin is normal, right? Here, here we will say it again. Christians should recognize their faults, but that we shouldn't be afraid to address them. But he says, knowing how uh, difficult we as sheep can be, 
He says, but what if he doesn't listen to you? Uh, what if he doesn't listen to you? Well, then he gives some further advice. He says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so if there's no recognition of sin, there's no contrition, then you discreetly invite one or two others to pursue the offender with you. Now, here's what I think is interesting. Who do you invite? Who do you invite? Do you invite two or three guys that this person will be intimidated by? Do you invite two or three strangers? No, you invite two or three brothers. You invite two or three people that, uh, excuse me, yeah, two or three people that this, that the offender trusts. You know, what, what would it, you know, imagine this, that you invite two or three people that that person knows better than you know them. So you are, you are more than on an even playing field here. See, they're not going uh, to condemn. See, they're not going to pile on. Uh, but what you see here is that, um, is that you have a community of people who are now exploring uh, their behavior as they are committed to humility as they are aware of the danger and pride that's always there within them, as they uh, uh, are also recognizing that Christ is always pursuing them. See, the goal in this situation is not condemnation. The goal is restoration. The goal is not to insist one person is right and the other is wrong. The goal is to, to save the relationship, to, to gain a brother. But verse 7 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax, tax collector. See, if it's still, if that person still um, doesn't listen, if he continues to be entangled in his sin, then you come to the church, you bring it to the elders. And depending on the situation, uh, this could be a very long, drawn out, a thorough, extended season of pursuit. Um, but depending on the situation, if the, the person never comes around and all they're in agreement that this person has uh, sinned against somebody or is in habitual sin against somebody, then you're called to treat that person as a Gentile or a tax collector. And what does that mean? A Gentile, of course, is somebody who is always outside the family, who was never actually in the family. And a tax collector is what? A tax collector was somebody who had betrayed the community and was therefore dangerous to the community. And why, how can they make those, those conclusions? Because Christians believe that Christ is in the midst. See, it's not about one human being being right and the other being wrong and you just debating it and negotiating it. No, we're, we're looking for the Spirit of God to come and minister to us in these moments to lead us. So see, Christian leaders are counterintuitive and countercultural because we're meant to be leaders that the world uh, finds safe, but we're also, uh, that the world can trust, but we're meant to create communities that are trustworthy and safe as well. So moving on. What do we know? We know that Christians are always being pursued. They're always being pursued by sin because sin is always crouching at the door. 
But we also know that in and through the church, in and through methods like this, we are being discipled. Christians are being discipled. We're being sustained and we're being guided by Christ. He's the leader of the church. We're the body. He's the head. Lastly, uh, as a counterintuitive, countercultural community, we study the purity and the peace of the church. What does it mean to study? Well, of course, studying means to explore. It means to investigate. It means to, uh, to um, learn, uh, study, and investigate to the point of understanding. To investigate and learn. And, and what we discover, even in this well-written phrase, is that peace and purity go together. So often, right, in our culture, peace is the goal, but we fail to understand that you cannot have peace. You cannot know peace without going through purity. And that's the beauty of this, one of the beautiful aspects of this question. Will you study the purity and the peace of the church? And purity comes first here in this sentence, doesn't it? Purity comes first. You cannot have peace without purity. And we see that in our culture. You, you take the Me Too movement. Everyone should want peace here. Everyone should want justice here. We want peace. We need peace. And yet we're stuck in a tension here, aren't we? Because we cannot, in good conscience, fight for justice for women who've been assaulted and sexually abused, while at the same time protecting, ignoring entire industries that shape sexuality and male-female relationships in abusive ways. So you can't have justice and peace between men and women in a society where pornography is perceived as a mischievous vice, uh, where it's something that nobody ever talks about, and yet it's the most downloaded content in the world. So you, we're never going to have peace as long as we don't, between men and women in this way, unless we address the purity issue, unless we go through, we move through purity to peace. What about race equity? We want peace here. We need peace here. But we, we cannot have true peace unless we come through the purification that only a national sense of repentance can bring. Only a national sense of repentance over slavery and the systems uh, in our nation that bring about inequity. So what about in the church? You know, if we're not studying the purity of the church in our doctrine and in our moral character, and that's what it means to study the purity and the peace of the church, is that we need to be clear in our doctrine and we need to be clear in our hearts, right? Then we will not know or we will not experience the peace that is ours through God and Christ. Think about that. We want to experience greater peace, but we don't want to take the time to study and investigate through the scriptures, God's perfect word, how God and Christ brings that peace. Maybe we desire peace, but because we're looking for peace and things beside God, we're trapped in all kinds of habitual sin. Uh, maybe uh, there's a relationship that needs to be reconciled or overworking. And because of that, we're unable to worship. See, we're, we need all of this peace, and yet we're not, we're not living and uh, pursuing purity. Therefore, we can't worship like we ought. Our prayers lack power. There's a fog between us and God and uh, in our minds, in our hearts, in our prayers. 
so that not only do we struggle in faith, but uh, you know, personally, individually, but our witness to the world is, is compromised. It's not, it's not captivating. It's not attractive. There's no peace that anybody can see because there's no purity that's evident. So when I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about the reality that as Christians, we'll always have that indwelling sin. We'll always be fighting uh, the sin uh, that's within us. I'm talking about the reality that though we desire peace with God and with one another, we tend to normalize the way that we abuse God's created order, the way that we minimize our pride and its impact on others. And we rationalize our lives when we ought to be true peacemakers, when we ought to be repenting. So how do we study the purity and peace of the church? How do we be countercultural? How do we uh, live in ways that are counterintuitive to our own selves? Should we read the Bible more? Should we do more self-examine? Should we spend more time in prayer and community and service? Yes, all of those things. We should be studying those things, investigating those things, pursuing those things. But all is for naught if we don't study Jesus. If we really want to study purity and peace, we've got to study Jesus Christ. We've got to study Jesus. Study his humility. If he really is the son of God, the incarnation means that he became flesh. That he was, um, he humbled himself into a human body for 33 years. And for 33 years, he lived a perfect life. If we really want to study uh, purity and peace, we need to study the awareness of Jesus. His own need for prayer his own reliance on scripture. Uh, we need to see how uh, he sees in us how desperate and weak we are for strength, for spiritual strength, for spiritual authority, for spiritual discipline. And, he, and his awareness of all that it would take to make his friends, his disciples, the leaders that the world trusts, trusts. So we, we need to study also the pursuit of Christ because only Jesus could bring true peace by being pure. See, the only way that he could reconcile uh, us to God is by being pure, the spotless lamb, right? And only in being that pure can he actually bring, can he be, bring peace. But because he was pure, he did bring peace by way of the cross. There goes the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus wants to create Christian leaders that the world can trust so that we can create communities that are safe, that are built on trust. That's what this passage is all about. That's what this vow is all about. Can we affirm that? That's what, that's what we're being tasked to consider. Let's do that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, what a noble, what a noble pursuit to follow your son. And yet, Lord, um, nobility is an overused word to describe um, what you are and what you call Christians to be. Lord, I pray for myself. Uh, I pray for my friends that we would be humble, that we'd have greater awareness, but our hope would be through the 
a roof because we know that you are pursuing us, that you will never forsake us. And I pray we'd be the kind of leaders that the church uh, is always meant to have so that the world can see us and in us see and experience you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.